0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Mark, um, and I'm reading the Bible this morning. I'm absolutely delighted to be reading the Bible this morning, the first time for me in this church. Before I read it, I'd just like to say a couple of things. Um, you folks may not realise this, but you're in a special place. I come from a church that was failing, but this Trinity network is growing. So continue honouring the Bible and honouring God's word, and be grateful for your leadership. It's a wonderful thing. And now the reading. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. "'It was because your hearts were hard "'that Moses wrote you this law,' Jesus replied. "'But at the beginning of creation, "'God made them male and female. "'For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother "'and be united to his wife, "'and the two will become one flesh. "'So they are no longer two. But one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Hear the word of the Lord.
1: Share the person you that will, share, do keep the conversation going, share someone you can pray for from that list as we talk through a tricky topic for a bright sunny morning, hey. But I've got to say though, we're doing this because... uh, it's where we're, up to, where we're up to in Mark's Gospel. Uh, our conviction at Trinity is to open, read, explain the Bible, uh, all parts of it. And we do it desiring to please God, to reflect His grace in our lives and to those around us. Then sometimes on this journey, we will find parts of the Bible that are tricky and confronting and we need to wrestle with them. So we're doing it because of that. There's no issue that we're dealing with that says we should speak into this. So just hear that. That We're just up to it, okay? Uh, Secondly, we come to this knowing it's painful and complex. We come to it knowing that the God, uh, the Christian God, in fact, understands our life, and he provides plenty of grace and compassion as we navigate relationships in a a world that is not ideal at times. And that's the first point I want you to see as we think through this today, uh, that Jesus is good news for relationships if we would hear and see it. He's good news if we would hear and see it. Secondly, by way of the big picture here, these stories are a unity. That's why we're preaching on them together. And they're united in the fact that both the Pharisees and the disciples need a corrective in their understanding of God's heart for people. Theirs was a culture that had missed the God-given intent of marriage, women and children as a package devaluing marriage as given by God and devaluing children as made in the image of God. This was the culture. So let's flip it and begin with the children first because it's a little bit easier and we'll make a few very brief comments and you'll see the link hopefully pretty clearly by the end. So when Jesus says, the kingdom belongs to such as these, talking to the disciples about children, he's highlighting first of all the compassion and care God has for all people. Children are a lesson in what discipleship looks like. A simple coming to and trusting Jesus with their life and then echoing that into his community. The echoing is what the disciples fail to do. They fail to see things the way Jesus does and they find themselves on the receiving end of Jesus' indignation. The pointy part of this section is that even today, you and me, we can find ourselves in the same position. Let us honestly ask ourselves, as we read Mark's gospel ourselves and as we preach through it week by week, do I have a view, and I ask I, me here as well, do I have a view, an opinion, an attitude or a thought in which Jesus would feel indignation about me as one of his followers? Because we don't always get it right either. A good question to ask is, is my vision of following Jesus in contrast to his? Am I behaving in a way that Jesus would feel indignation about me? Because the Pharisees sure were. Let's go back to the start. When Jesus gives his short reply about marriage and divorce here, it's important to note that he's not speaking to someone who is wrestling with this question personally or grieving their separation that's just happened. Come and have a look at why I think that. Firstly, in 10 verse 1, we have the context of where Jesus is. Always important to know. He goes to the region of Judea, and he teaches the crowds. We've seen this happening a lot, but the first time in Mark, he's gone to Judea. Judea was a territory overseen by someone called King Herod. King Herod is not a nice chap. In Mark chapter 6, John the Baptist was reminding God's people they shouldn't look to King Herod as God's true, lasting king. And he made the point by speaking out about Herod's behavior. Herod wanted so badly to marry his brother's wife, and this is a tricky one. Herod wanted to marry Heroditus, a Herodias, sorry. Herod wanted to marry Herodias, his brother's wife. She divorced him to marry the other brother. Herod isn't the savior, the reconciler, the king God has promised. If he's living that way, don't look to that king. Look to God's true king, who's not in the palace, who looks very different. And that language provoked. Herodias and Herod, and she convinced Herod to put John in prison, and then at a wild, crazy party, in contrast to the banquet last week with the feeding of the 5,000, Herodias beheaded, or arranged to have John beheaded. Jesus goes into this territory. And at the same time, the Pharisees have a big debate going over as to what was the appropriate situation for divorce. And as debates sometimes go, time blurs the reason why you started the conversation in the first place. And they're too focused at this point in how to get out of a marriage, not to make a marriage healthy. So Jesus is here with this king, with what John the Baptist said, with this huge divorce debate going on. And the Pharisees know it. And so in 10 verse 2, they want to trap or trick Jesus. Notice that, that's very clear. They want to trap and trick him. Because for them, no matter how they imagine Jesus to reply, here's what's going to happen. You're going to disagree with the school of thought from from the law, from Judaism, which means we can put you in the firing line of Herod. You might get taken to prison and, at best case scenario, get beheaded too, like John. Which means if Jesus sounds blunt and short, remember he's the good shepherd taking on wolves in sheep's clothing here. In the other gospel account is, in the other Gospels, we have a number of moments when Jesus meets people who have gone through divorce many times, like in John chapter four. We meet a woman caught in the act of adultery in John chapter eight, and it turns out in those Jesus is compassionate and gracious and has a very different tone, a very different reply. In the Gospels, we meet a tender Jesus who longs to point us back to the beauty and the heart of God, but is fiercely. Bold against the wolf. So, what's this question to trap and trick Jesus? Well, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, in Jesus' day, divorce was very easy, it was informal, but it always looked forward to remarriage. It was simple as this husband writes a certificate, you are divorced, you can get married to anyone you like, there you go. That was it. That's what it says. It was also very difficult for a woman to get divorced. And you'll see something of the cultural challenges of that in John chapter 4 as well, when you meet someone who's been divorced four times. Now the question is, where did they come up with such an idea as this? Well, 10 verse 4, they claim Moses said you can do it. Moses said you can do it. But in Deuteronomy 24, that's not exactly what Moses says. Moses wrote at a time to protect the woman from a fickle husband and guard her rights. Moses knew marriages will break down. And in those moments, God does not leave people to their own, to live with the consequences of someone's decision. So in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 5, he writes a law to help people people manage in the community. And of course, it sounds a bit odd to us today, but this law in Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 5, gave the woman great protection from an evil man, The Pharisees here had spent too much time trying to work out when a man could divorce a woman rather than helping them have a healthy, connected, safe marriage. Which, if you read Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, scroll down to verse 5, and it says, I think it's the only time in Deuteronomy that the word happy is used, and it says a husband should make his wife and bring her happiness. In the very next verse. Which is why... In ten verse six, Jesus does not debate the law of Moses. It's a bit of a trick question because he says, when when what did Moses say? They should have gone back further to the other book Moses wrote, which is Genesis, when they see God's intent for humanity. And then we get this hard heartedness. You know, the human heart is great at finding loopholes, and we always want to go as close to the line as possible, the edge to justify our decisions. In 2020, a man from Wangaratta discovered a loophole with his bank and a certain ATM. may have heard about it. If he transferred money from his uh, credit account, credit card, to his savings account at 1.30 in the morning, the ATM shut down and did an update. But the money went into the savings but also stayed in the credit account. So $100 here, err, error, still got it, but now he's got it there. He got $2 million dollars. By just continually as long as he didn't overdraw his credit, he could just get this loophole and he could just put in hundred, two hundred, thousand over and you know, every night, he would go to work and he would do that. He found a loophole Then he got caught. So the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus with a loophole as well. Where's the highest authority? Is it Moses? Is it Herod? Is it one of our schools of thought? You see, they're not asking about the specifics of abuse, adultery, walking out, neglect, painful moments marriages can face. They're not asking that. Which is why he clarifies God's intent by by not saying yes or no at this moment, but by showing what did God have in mind. The higher authority is God. See, Jesus' understanding of marriage begins by digging into the goodness of God. So in 10 verse 6, He points out how male and female are created in the image of God with dignity and value. They're unique, they're different, but complementary. Then in verse 7 and 8, he emphasizes the oneness of marriage, of two people coming together to become one flesh. Now for the Pharisees who saw uh, the man as the one who had power and status, Jesus shuts this down and puts everyone on an equal playing field, saying, you're all made in the image of God. Your spouse is not property. But to be valued... As bone and skin from your own body, you love and care for each other. You are not joining yourself to something, but someone. Becoming something new, one one with each other. You see, when Jesus does this, he first of all shows a positive view of marriage and how God's good vision should be theirs and ours. God wants us to have beautiful marriages of intimacy and vulnerability and safety, not thinking, how quick can I find a fault to get out to find someone else? Their question shouldn't be, what does the law say about divorce? But how can we keep marriages together like God's intent as long as possible? Which is what Jesus concludes with in 10 verse 9, where he says, Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Ideally, yes. Perfect world, marriages should be permanent. In that vision, it means God wants our marriages to be places of intimacy and delight where we can be completely open and feel completely safe. Under God, we go into our marriages thinking, how can I make this succeed and flourish under God? How can the goodness of God's intent for creation continually inform my view of all relationships? That's the question they should have asked him. All this is to say Jesus wants them to have a oneness and a permanency view of marriage, not an emergency escape button they can push whenever they want to move on. That's the culture. They've missed the point. And yes, divorces happen. God's community has, community has a space for that. But They should be focused on healthy marriages more than debating divorce, like they were doing. Now, of course, the disciples have grown up with the Pharisees' teaching and Jesus has blown out the water, what they thought, so they need a few moments to process, as I'm sure you probably do as well. So if you're in, if you funding is hard, first of all, that's okay. The disciples did, you're in good company. And while we can't talk about everything, know that there are some resources on our online hub which might help and I'd love to talk more over a cup of coffee as well. So after a cup of coffee and a sandwich, the disciples go up to Jesus and say, Unpack that more, please. So, in verse 10. First up, it, Jesus is not giving a full lesson on divorce and remarriage here. Not, he's not covering all the complexities of all relationships. The context has not changed when the disciples ask clarify to what the, Jesus replied to the Pharisees. He's addressing people like Herod and the Pharisees who want to make legitimate and adulterous intent. And for Jesus, this hard-hearted attitude towards marriage puts you in the same category as being unfaithful. That's why he mentions adultery. After all, a hard heart in a marriage is horrible. It's broad in its effects. Long before a divorce might happen, a hard heart can ruin and destroy and damage so very much. Even a hard heart in one moment in a marriage that is healthy and strong can still cause friction. And so you see, the Bible wants to uphold the intent, the good intent, but it's very realistic about what can happen. Because it's not always the case that you are unfaithful if you remarry. Consider in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, that death is one way that marriages end. Or in the same chapter of 1 Corinthians 7, we find a situation in which a Christian might find themselves being abandoned by their spouse. A Christian may find themselves walked out on from their partner, or walking, or their partner walking away from their faith and having wanting nothing more to do with them. And in those painful moments, they are not bound by their marriage any longer. And in those instances, in that abandonment, it would seem that you're not committing adultery if you remarry. You see, what the Christian story does is give us God's intent. It's to help those married take every step to maintain a strong, safe, healthy marriage. Which means that there should be a willingness to forgive one another for little things, for big things, for earth-shattering things. Working towards reconciliation should be a priority and divorce should be a last resort. And I think that does justice to the permissible nature of it, yes, yeah. But also that it's not mandatory or certain. For example, in the Old Testament book of Hosea, we see that... Adultery has the potential to end a marriage, but it doesn't have to. So Hosea marries someone called Gomer. They're not married long. She runs away and is unfaithful with many men. And Hosea goes and finds her, pays off her debt, welcomes her back home, loves her, and recommits himself to her in Hosea 3, 1-3. You just feel the weight of what he's doing. But he does that because he understands a bigger love. In Harry Potter. The point. Break up a hard talk. In Harry Potter, um Dumbledore, the principal, leaves Harry a sword. It's very powerful and it can defeat evil. Defeats evil Voldemort. But there's a copy of it. Ooh. And the copy has no magical properties to do anything other than look like the sword, right? It can't do a thing. The copy's not the original. And at the end of the book, one character who's very small and weaselly and not very clever is called Neville and he's he's a comic relief at times and he stands up to the evil and says, you will not go any further and then I'm gonna stop you and he can't do a thing. Like an ant taking an airplane, you know, it's not gonna. But the, the sword, the original appears in his hand, you know and suddenly he's got the original and the power to you know overcome evil and that's what happens and like that original copy Jesus love is the powerful original deeper stronger love all marriages and our loves are copies of that one see the original is what we need as we go into relationships and marriages his love is what gives us the perspective and strength and forgiveness and gentleness to face the challenge of a hard heart in me and my partner. It is says of Jesus in Matthew twelve twenty, a bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. If you feel bruised and smouldering, there is a wonderful, compassionate Jesus waiting for you who's not here to heap more judgment on you or snuff out your life. In love, this big, original Jesus came to unite us back to God, to his oneness, pays off our debts, commits himself to us through a covenant paid for in his own blood. He loves us while we were still sinners, to provide extraordinary grace and mercy that flows on to affect all our relationships. Jesus is good news. So, let me tie the threads up. 9... Or 15 points to summarise, quickly. Can a Christian divorce and remarry? Well, it depends. It's not as easy as never or any time. It's complex. Remarriage may not be the best step, nor the next step, and there's lots to work through. So hear that. It's not a simple thing. This passage is speaking into a culture that allowed very easy divorce in the name of God, to which Jesus says, don't look at loopholes, look at God's intent and vision. As a church, we desire to see healthy, safe, strong marriages holding God's intent so they can reflect and image Jesus and his love for us. We encourage couples to work on their marriages so they can feel safe and loved and well-connected. In the words of John Gottman, a marriage researcher, he says, people with the greatest expectation for their marriage usually wind up with the highest quality. This suggests that by holding a relationship to high standards, you're far more likely to achieve the kind of marriage you want than by looking the way and letting things slide. Separation divorce, therefore, are sad, painful aspects of our relationships that God is aware of. We reject any form of abuse in marriage from any partner. We want to offer care and compassion and the grace of Jesus to those in a relationship that is hard or hurting or have faced the trials and challenges of divorce and separation because God is not against the divorced person. We're reminded too that broken relationship between people does not break the covenant of love that Jesus has for you secured in his blood, in his death, in his resurrection, because his is the original. And we long for each person to know that. We say remarriage should never be entered into lightly, but sincerely asking, thinking, praying, seeking about what will you do different this time. So, recognizing we're all in different boats in the journey of life and relationships. We all want to follow Jesus sincerely and honestly. I want to offer a final point of connection for everyone today. And it's this. Jesus takes away hard-heartedness. The Pharisees and disciples had hard hearts. So There's two stories. There was... Remember the kids? We've gone a long way. There was two stories. They had hard hearts to God's law and God's image bearers. But what if a hard, stony heart towards my spouse, towards someone in the the community of God's people can change and become sensitive, caring and soft and safe? What if it can come, not through doing better or trying harder, but through a heart transplant, a whole new heart? And that's the promise of Jesus. He came not to make us better, but to give us a new life, to take away a hard heart towards God so we can have His vision, walk humbly through the brokenness of our world with His arm around us, as one who loves us with the original, eternal, strong, safe, faithful love that we need to survive. And he demonstrates this love, not with flowers or socks, but by his blood on the cross, washing us clean, making us new. Therefore, from that position, we adopt God's vision for life, for people, for relationships. But you also admit, this change isn't straightforward, and the new way of life isn't simple as Jesus' disciples found, the disciples found. It's confronting. And sometimes if Jesus offers you a corrective today, or any day, to convict your hard-heartedness, if you're a great follower of this great lover himself, Jesus, then expect that you will be challenged at times when you've misread God's intent and act in ways or thoughts that are contrary to his intent. But remember this. Jesus says it to the disciples. Because only a soft heart is open to the ongoing correction of Jesus. It shows you belong. He brings that up because he loves you, to see you flourish and not let your heart be hard and callous. So there's great hope and compassion today for all of us. So no matter where your heart sits, hard, soft, not sure, need some time to digest, that's okay. Meet the Jesus who's walking with you along the way in all moments with the original relationship you're made for. That's Mark 10, 1 to 16. Let me pray. Father God, we love you. You are the one we're made for. You commit yourself to us through Jesus, and that never changes, fades, grows cold, or disappears because you're solid. Help us to embrace the wonderful love of Jesus for his love to wash over us, wash us clean, make us new, because we need that. Regardless of our relationship status, that's what we need first. So be our God, you are our Lord. We commit our life and our church to you. Amen.